welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place where we're taking a shared journey to learning more about ourselves and our bodies. I'm Jordan Harris, it's my co-host, co-host Dr. Julia Conroy, and this is episode two of our polyvagal series, Why Zebras Don't Have Nervous Systems. I'm talking today about the nervous system. Um, and so this is, I feel like, something that you Dr. Conroy are like really into, like really knowledgeable about more than a lot of therapists. Um, party, you know, this is what you did your your dissertation on, and also you um, actually took a class on physiology, right? <laughs> Which is like yeah. <laughs> the thing that we Which probably should all I be do. doing, <laughs> right? No, no therapist thinks I'm going to take a class on physiology, but it matters. It matters a lot. Yeah. Um, and. I just, so, I just sort of want to back up for a second as we dive into this conversation and say, in therapy, we talk a lot about the autonomic nervous system, right? Like in, in therapy worlds. And the way that I understand it is that actually that's not the whole nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. And for someone like me, I break it down into something very simple. And I say, we have a voluntary nervous system and we have a uh, automatic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? And the voluntary nervous mm -hmm. system controls things like, you know, um, things that I can do voluntarily, automatic, mm -hmm. things that I can do with effort, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it controls like my muscular system. Mm -hmm. um, now the automatic nervous system, the other side of it, is all the things that I can't control voluntarily, like my heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to get into that and all of the things that the autonomic branch of the nervous system does. Mm -hmm. But before we do, I just want to check in with you. Is that sort of, is that basic conceptual, conceptualization? Yeah, correct? we have a volunteer. Absolutely. And, and I think it's really important to start there because I think, especially when I think about clients coming in with anxiety or the way that we often understand anxiety. It's because I think that my automatic involuntary system should be under my control mm. the way that my voluntary system is. And that's really just not how it works. Um, and so usually um, when clients are coming in for some sort of panic disorder, or anxiety disorder, it's because I don't have control over my involuntary system. That's never a surprise. <laughs> That's never concerning. Nobody should have uh, an effortful control over that, right? But it's often when I feel like it's just out of control. Like I don't understand at all where it's coming from or it's kind of taking over, it's inhibiting function um, from what I'm wanting. And so I think really understanding this system um, with more depth kind of allows us to have a more clear framework with which how not to, to to get it under control but to understand the function that it serves yeah you say that and it just makes you think of all the people i know who when they have anxiety or when they have panic attacks or when they have something along those lines mm -hmm. their heart rate increases right and it's just as um like they don't have any control over how fast mm -hmm. the heart beats not mm -hmm. effortful not voluntary yeah. control mm -hmm on a daily basis. So why would they have that same sort of control when they're in the middle of a anxiety attack or a panic attack? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
there are a bunch of things that the autonomic nervous system sort of controls, right? Mm -hmm. Automatically, outside of conscious mm -hmm. sort of effort. Mm -hmm. um, and these, the other side of this is, this is where we sort of get into the sympathetic mm -hmm. and the parasympathetic branches, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the autonomic nervous system is split into two branches. One, um, that's the sympathetic, that's all about arousal, right? Mm -hmm. Activation, mm -hmm. mobilization. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. the parasympathetic branch. Mm -hmm. um, and this one is about helping us to be calm, helping us to you know, be vegetative, helping mm -hmm. us to sleep and grow. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is that framing. <laughs> like, like when we talk about it that way is you have one that's sympathetic one that's parasympathetic why is that problem problematic yeah i think um we often this early understanding of kind of classifying the different functions that they have is that oftentimes and we even see this in zapolsky's book right that they're pitted against one another okay that i my sympathetic is overactivated. It's doing too much. Okay, how can I utilize the fight, <laughs> right, if you will, of my parasympathetic to combat it and, and to beat it down <laughs> into submission? Like pitting one against the other kind of sets up this framework where one is good and the other is bad, that I attempt to suppress the one because I prefer the state of the other, um, which is, is honestly dangerous. Um, and I know that sounds strange to say, but what we're seeing in research now is that both of these systems actually are working together. They have two very different strategies, but what both are trying to do is to try to keep the body in an optimal state of functioning, which is also called homeostasis, right? And so there's a certain body temperature, there's a certain like rate of processing for all of these different functions where your body knows this is when I'm at my best. And both of the systems, both sympathetic and parasympathetic are doing what they can to keep the body in homeostasis. They just have two different strategies because both are needed. In moments where I'm in some sort of danger, I need to be activated, right? I need to be mobilized to do something about it in order to keep my body in the safest state possible, right? But then I also need to be able to calm down and relax when that's no longer necessary. And so I think that's the beautiful part of, of the research that's coming up now and especially supported by the polyvagal theory is, okay, both of these systems are ultimately working for the good of the human body trying to keep it at its best functioning possible. We need both strategies in different scenarios, but we need a balance and flexibility and fluidity between the arousals of both systems in order to keep us in our best state. Yeah, so it's like when we split the autonomic nervous system into sympathetic and parasympathetic, we also pit them against each other. Yeah. And that's yeah. a problem because both are actually helpful. 
Right. Exactly. And I've definitely seen this, you know, I've seen um, other therapists talk about clients and I think they really mean well, but they talk about it as though the person shouldn't be anxious. They shouldn't be mm-hmm. whatever. And they need to actually like, like use deep breathing skills, right. To bring them back down. And kind of what they're saying is this person's um, sympathetic system is too high. Yeah. And we got to use the parasympathetic to control it. Yeah. Yeah. To like master it, to, to suppress master it. it. To, to suppress Absolutely. Because yeah. one is preferable over the other, right? right? Which makes sense because uh, when my parasympathetic system is activated, I usually feel a whole lot better. Yeah. <laughs> right. I feel relaxed. I feel at ease. I'm, I'm feeling good. Right. But also, I can't be in a calm state for my whole life, right? That's just not the world that I live in. Um, And I'm sure that you live in and everyone listening is living in that we need a stress response at times when our our kids do something where we need to step in really quick and keep them safe, right? I, I need to be able to kind of activate a little bit when I've got a big deadline and I need to get motivated and get mobilized to get it taken care of. If we are looking to suppress the sympathetic nervous system, we lose some of the most essential parts of our functioning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is actually where the polyvagal theory sort of comes in, right? It goes back to last week when polyvagal theory says, instead of this sort of yin and yang fighting against each other, there's a hierarchy. Yeah. And the hierarchy is dependent on how safe you feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so not only does it split this parasympathetic into two different branches, which I think in and of itself can kind of be confusing, but basically what it says is these responses are not pitted against each other. There's a hierarchy that's Mm -hmm. meant to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. So if we're safe and social, Mm -hmm. right? That's one state that we can be in. That's a parasympathetic sort of um, mm-hmm. response. But if we are under attack, mm-hmm. we can go into a sympathetic sort of state, mm-hmm. which is a way to keep us, to protect ourselves from threats. And if mm-hmm. we think that we're gonna die, that's mm-hmm. when, okay, we reuse the parasympathetic system mm-hmm. in order to keep ourselves safe long term. Absolutely. Right. And so I need to understand my sympathetic and parasympathetic response as an indicator of how safe my body feels Mm. in a space. Um, I I saw a client for the first time two weeks ago who came in presenting with anxiety and she said, and I just asked, you know, kind of what life looked like right now. And she said, well, we're doing layoffs at work. I Basically, I've been told if I don't like hit these thresholds or these markers or come in, my team doesn't come in at this percentage, I'm probably going to lose my job right before the holidays, right? And also things at home in her marriage, things are up in the air. Her and her husband are contemplating divorce. And she's like, I just feel so anxious all the time. And it's like, I don't know what to tell you because your body's not malfunctioning with that anxiety. There is a lot of danger present at work. There's a lot of danger present at home. 
where there's so much instability and uncertainty, your anxiety is not malfunctioning here. This is your body constantly on high alert. And it should be, (laughs) it should be letting you know that a threat is very present from multiple angles. This is just giving you a cue about how safe I feel right now. This is not malfunctioning. There's nothing broken here. There's still some things we can do um, to alleviate that, but there's nothing broken in this, this state of life. Yeah. It's like, okay, your body's picking up on the fact that there's a lot of things you've got to get mobilized about. Yeah. You gotta, you, you gotta activate and get your energy up and do a lot of stuff at work. If you want to keep your job. Yeah, absolutely. It's designed, right, to give that energy and to supply that effort where our body's picking up that it's so needed because the results are going to be devastating if I don't. Right. So that's really big. Um, And then you said something else that I think is really important, right? You talked about homeostasis. Mm -hmm. The way I think about that is balance. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of a way to think about it? Like my body's always trying to maintain balance with myself and with my environment yes and I do I think balance I've heard it used kind of in a tricky way with Mm. even like parasympathetic sympathetic like they're both holding and balance or like parasympathetic dominating that's the balance right when you're relaxed and so I have really appreciated um the results of Selyer he did a lot of the original stress research phenomenal work what he really find and and how he kind of took away maybe those um, connotations of that balance is, okay, this is literally your body knows where, like the levels where it functions best. So pH levels, like body temperature, all of it, like I know optimum functioning and I'm always looking to get you to the point of optimum functioning, right? And so it does this physiologically when I start to exercise or exert myself physically, here comes sweat, right? Because my body's like, okay, don't get overheated. This is the temperature where your body functions best. We're going to do what it takes. Then when stress uh, hormones are released into the body, right? During moments of distress, there are also these compensatory responses that the body has all seeking to create this balance within the body for homeostasis, which ultimately leads to the optimum functioning that our body's constantly striving for. I think that's a really good distinction too, right? Like mm-hmm. by balance, we don't mean like I'm in this state where I'm like a yogi and I'm like <laughs> emotionally centered and I'm peace and I'm calm. Like, no, we mean like- Your body doesn't care about that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about balance yeah. in the sense of- optimal functioning for where I am right now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if I'm in a situation at work where my boss is saying hey if you don't hit these markers Mm -hmm. you're going to be fired balance Mm -hmm. means something different than if I am home watching tv with Mm -hmm. a partner those are different types of balance that you need in that moment yeah and it should look different right that's not your body malfunctioning it's really trying to keep you safe physiologically making sure that there's a balance that it's functioning where it needs to to kind of carry out the functions that that are being present yeah so there's one other thing i want to sort of um touch on here which is so in the old model the autonomic system has two branches Mm -hmm. the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and they're fighting against each other 
-hmm. And in the new model, right, in the polyvagal theory model, it's almost like there are three branches, right? There's this three-level hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and what they've, what we've done in polyvagal world is we're saying actually the parasympathetic has two types of responding, mm -hmm. right? One that's social, mm -hmm. and one that's um, more protective. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna sort of try to try to simplify it. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that, like how how we went from having you know two that sort of are mm -hmm. antagonistic to having three? Yes, absolutely. So this traditional idea of sympathetic versus parasympathetic that's covered um, in the book that we're covering, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, basically, Zapolsky does a great job of summarizing this more traditional argument, which basically comes from a place that makes sense because the sympathetic activates kind of the opposite of what the parasympathetic does. So everything that the sympathetic does, it pumps out blood to the limbs to, you know, really activate mobilization. And in order to do that, it's like, all right, we're done with complex thinking. We're done with digestion. Like you don't have a sex drive here. Like we shut down everything um, to really prioritize this mobilization because that's what's most necessary for survival. Even things like, obviously your heart rate beats up to make sure that happens, um, but it really seeks to mobilize more than anything else. There's also like an awareness in the senses, right? So my vision kind of becomes sharper in those moments because all of these changes are meant to maximize my chances of survival for whatever threat is present. Whereas the parasympathetic does the opposite of all of those things, mm. right? That heart rate can slow again. The blood is more evenly distributed throughout the body. Digestion starts again. I can um, be aroused sexually. My muscles like aren't as tight um, and primed for mobilization. They can relax. My digestion starts again. Immunity goes up. All of these things because it's like, all right, we no longer need to, you know, distribute all of this to prioritize mobilization. We can kind of regulate. Everyone gets their fair share of attention and energy um, at this point. So you can see, given those functions, given what that looks like on the surface, it feels like those are opposed to one another, right? Um, it makes sense. They're doing kind of opposite functions. Um, However, our bodies, like what polyvagal theory is saying is we're not in this state of tug of war <laughs> between one and the other, where it's like, all right, let's figure out how to make our parasympathetic stronger so that we're no longer like susceptible um, to the sympathetic nervous system and, and subject to whatever it decides we're feeling. Instead, what polyvagal is saying is, all right, all systems right, are really looking to do what's best for the person. Um, but those functions should look different depending on the level of safety that's present. So in a perfectly safe space, humans are meant to connect and they're meant to basically have that parasympathetic system come online, that I can be relaxed, that I can connect with others, that I can be intimate with them, 
that I can have this sex drive, that my immune system's functioning, that I can relax and be creative in these ways. And, and really, you know, this idea of self-actualization um, that I can live into that. Um, but when there is a threat present, that shouldn't be there, <laughs> right? That I need to prioritize protecting myself in that moment, if I'm ever going to get back to that state, right, yeah. I need to focus on protecting myself now to make sure there's anything left of me to get back to that state. Uh, so protection becomes the priority. And the yeah. sympathetic system really activates what's needed to prioritize that protection. Um, and, and even just like we talked about uh, in the last episode, you know, if it gets to the point where there is this freeze response that comes online, when the threat feels so imminent and so dangerous that this could end my life, that even this protective function emerges where let me just freeze, let me die as painlessly as possible, um, just so that this can be over. Yeah. That those are more protective responses that are necessary because of the threat that's present and ultimately looking to go back to that point of safety and that point where the parasympathetic can be activated. The tricky part, according to polyvagal theory, though, is when we have rigidity in the right. ways that we're activated and rigidity um, in that protection that we're not able to be fluid according to the threat that's present, but that we get stuck in this place that we feel like a threat is always present. Yeah. It sounds like a big part of what you're saying is, so our autonomic nervous system has two branches. Mm -hmm. One that speeds us up, the sympathetic, one that sort of mm -hmm. pauses us, the parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. But the parasympathetic can pause us for different reasons. Mm -hmm. It can pause us, to help us to connect to other people, but it can mm -hmm. also pause us to help us to protect ourselves. Mm. And so that's mm. why we have the sort of three different branches. And the problem exactly. is when we can't switch between all three, when we mm -hmm. get rigid and stuck in one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. You actually talked on this, but I think this is also really important, right? Um, the different functions, the different body systems that the sympathetic and the parasympathetic um, produce and I actually made a list here right like and we're just going to go through five areas of the body in your eyes the sympathetic causes your pupils to dilate and the parasympathetic causes your pupils to constrict mm -hmm. um, and that's so you know if your pupils dilate you can take in more information you're more primed to take in that information to protect yourself in your mouth, right? Salvation, sal, salvation, salivation <laughs> stops uh, when the sympathetic is turned on and it starts when the parasympathetic is turned on. Um, in your heart, your heart rate speeds up when your sympathetic is activated and, your and when your parasympathetic is activated, your heart rate slows down. In your, in your stomach, right? And I guess also in your intestines, I'd have to ask you about this, but digestion stops when the sympathetic system is activated and it gets going again when the parasympathetic is, is activated. Mm -hmm. And then also sexually, 
the sympathetic is what allows you to orgasm and then the parasympathetic is what allows for arousal Mm -hmm. So these are sort of the things they talks about in the book, right? Like these mm -hmm. are the physical systems in your body mm -hmm. and which state you're in dictates which of these behaviors you can do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so here's the big question. This is really what got me into polyvagal theory, right? Like there was a time when I wanted to like read people and like, understand what they were thinking through their facial expressions and all this stuff. And one of the things that you learn in polyvagal theory is that the face is the display system for the body. Mm -hmm. You can generally tell what state someone is in. You can tell where they are on that ladder mm -hmm. by how their face looks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think this is another cool part of polyvagal. Like, of course, the facial expressions, like I can tell, especially if I know someone well, like, okay, you're smiling, but like, this is off. <laughs> Something's like not real here that our bodies are really primed to be able to recognize that state in others. Um, because we're, we, uh, this herd mentality if somebody has a reason to be worried, it does me good <laughs> to be able to recognize that quickly because there's probably a threat coming for me as well. And so this is where we see, you know, mirror neuron conversations start because just seeing that you're activated, seeing that someone next to me is activated gets me activated because I'm like, oh shoot, like, is there something I should be worried about too? And this is also what Forges says is it's not just the facial cues, but also your vocal tone, right? Which makes sense. Like, even if you're talking to someone on the phone, you don't see their face at all, but you can hear in their voice when something's off. You can hear in their voice when something's not okay. And it just shows right in these moments. Um, we're looking, we're looking for cues, we're assessing for safety, both for us, yes, and being aware of the environment, but also checking in with other people, um, because that gives us cues of, of how safe we are, is how safe we feel like other people um, in a shared space are as well. Yeah, let's actually go into some of these cues, right, kind of get specific. Um, and basically what he says is you want to look at the muscles in the upper part of the face, like kind of like above the nose. Mm -hmm. um, and so if someone is in, the, you know, sort of the top of the hierarchy, the top of the ladder, and they feel safe and social and they're able to connect, you might see a smile and you see the crinkles in their eyes, mm -hmm. right? And then if they're in that sort of fight or flight state, they're one rung down on that, mm -hmm. on that ladder, that's when you're going to see, you know, like, widen eyes in fear, mm -hmm. uh, maybe furrowed brows or tightened eyelids for anger, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's displayed on the face. Mm -hmm. And then if at the bottom of the ladder, they're sort of in that freeze state, mm -hmm. right? That's when you sort of see a lot of flat affect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was so enlightening because I remember so clearly when I did in-home therapy, I had this family that I worked with and it always freaked me out because there was this one mom that I worked with who was always super flat and I could never figure out how to like mm -hmm. 
I feel like I was missing something between her and her kids. And then I'm like, she had been through so much stuff that she was stuck in a free state. So she Just couldn't totally be responsive to her kids. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was like, oh. And actually for me, this has helped me to understand my own state better. Right? Because mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm just like in the morning and I'm like, I can feel my face is just flat. I'm like, oh, I'm not in a good space. I need to go <laughs> like do something because I have kids and I got to get with the program. You know I got to I mean? be on. I got to yeah. be on. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's like, oh, I can it, just being able to do that check in helps me to check in with myself. Mm. So those are some of the like facial cues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which you you notice you don't have a lot of control over those a lot of times. Um, like I can't really make my eyes crinkle. Right. Which, again, like serves to this like involuntary response. Right. But your body sends off these messages. Your body has these responses beyond what you can control right and so if I notice that I'm not okay it's not necessarily like I always need to just force myself to smile but I kind of need to look internally and and say okay am I activated in some way what are ways that I need to you know take time to address that because this isn't conscious control this isn't the voluntary part of our nervous system yeah 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 i actually read a study once where they tested a bunch of people on like smiling mm-hmm. and it was 10 percent. 10 percent of people could actually control the muscles around their eye that that crinkle when you smile so for 90 percent of us it's impossible like you just you just either feel that way or you or you don't yeah you know? yeah um, which is crazy mm-hmm. what about vocally you're talking about vocal cues what are some of the vocal cues yeah. And so, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know enough like pitch terms and I'm definitely not musically talented enough to like identify them. Um, but basically what I've read from Porges has said that there are soothing, more soothing tones, um, that there are specific pitches, that there are specific cadences mm. that just feel more relaxed, um, that communicate a sense of safety right? Where if it's terse or if it's quick or if it's loaded or if it's charged, uh, then that kind of puts us on edge um, just because that cues that something's not okay here. Um, He says, you know, we wear our hearts on our sleeve, but we also wear them on our face uh, and we wear them in our vocal tones too, um, because all of these are signals that we're giving off. Um, of how we're doing in the level of safety that we feel like is currently present. Yeah. The the little that I know is um, like when your voice is melodic mm-hmm. and there's a lot of intonation, that's mm-hmm. a cue, especially for other people, that you're safe. Mm-hmm. And when your voice goes up an octave, mm-hmm. you know, think of like a kid's squealing, yeah. that's a cue that like mm-hmm. your body's in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then I've also, you know, the flatness of your voice. If your voice is sort of mm-hmm. monotone, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of modulation, mm-hmm. you know, um, people who really kind of did pan, you know, like mm-hmm. that's a cue that like, they're sort of more in that freeze level. Yeah, that f- absolutely. Freeze but you can tell incredibly adaptive 
for right. our bodies to be able to pick up on all of these cues to read where someone else is and at times where we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other, so we talked about the nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. And now it has different branches. And now what we're focusing on is the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. which has a part that speeds you up and a part mm-hmm. that pauses you. And it can pause you for protective reasons or for connection, connective reasons. Mm-hmm. And there are all these different cues. Um, other people can see in us to know where we are. And we can see in other mm-hmm. people to know where they are. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about glucocorticoids. All right. So <laughs> everyone's, ex- favorite. everyone's favorite topic, <laughs> right? What the heck is a glucocorticoid? Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. And I'm going to hope that you will correct the uh, stuff that I don't know. Because when we're talking about polyvagal, we're talking about the nervous system and the nerves. Mm-hmm. But these nerves communicate by releasing chemicals. Mm-hmm. And this is, and some of the chemicals that are released when we're in stress, two of the big categories of chemicals, I guess, are like adrenaline and glucocorticoids. So first off, is that understanding correct? Yes, absolutely. Adrenaline or epinephrine um, is being used more now that those, that's kind of one classification of this initial response. Um, and then the glucocorticoids are released uh, a little bit delayed, um, but that kind of like a second tier of that response. Okay. Exactly. And these are the chemicals that our, our nervous system puts out to change how our organs respond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so as we all know, there are some moments where I just need to be really quick, really fast. If I, you know, the other week we were with my niece and I see her start to fall um, off of the, the coffee table that she had gotten up on. And I need just a quick burst of energy just to run and grab her and to kind of study her in that moment. I don't need this super sustained response. Uh, but yesterday I gave a presentation I was pretty nervous about, right? And I need to be activated a little bit longer uh, in those moments because I'm talking for 30 minutes, right? And so basically that initial burst of, ener- uh, of energy, that's the epinephrine, that's the adrenaline that's released into your system. But if the body's able to recognize, okay, we need more, <laughs> like cortisol is still being pumped into the system. We need more. We need a sustained response. We need more energy here. Um, this isn't just going to be solved in a matter of seconds. That's when it's kind of this cascading effect where a few different systems um, get spoken to, to say, we need more, we need more. Um, and eventually hits those glucocorticoids, which results um, in this release of sugar, um, that's the glucose part, um, into the bloodstream to mobilize more energy, basically until that energy isn't needed anymore. Until the brain is no longer sending the message, I need (laughs) backup, (laughs) I need more, I need firepower, whatever it is, like until it gets the message, we're done here and we're good, um, it will continue to release those glucocorticoids into the bloodstream. And and there are studies that show that, you know, especially with um, people that are just like in prolonged periods of severe stress where there's just not easing up, 
these can be released for days. You can imagine the system is pretty depleted um, after that happens, but the body is incredibly adaptive to get you know, the limbs and, and whatever is needed in order to mobilize, um, to, to counteract that threat and, and to stay alive. Yeah, so the first type of chemicals that your body sends off when you're in stress are adrenaline, which I think is like the British version of the British name for it and, or yeah. epinephrine, <laughs> which is I think the American word for it. Yeah. Um, we always have to do something different. So always have to do something different, us Americans. And then the second level of chemicals, if the stressor goes on for, you know, half an hour, an hour, longer periods of time, mm-hmm. is basically cortisol, which the purpose of the cortisol is so your body can really release and use sugar, glucose, mm-hmm. as an energy source. Yes, absolutely. That I need kind of more firepower is the message that's given. I need more energy. I need to expend more. And so the body mobilizes to make that happen. Yeah. And these are primarily chemicals of the sympathetic part, right? These are the ones that make you mobilize, that get you vigilant, that get you activated, they energize you. Yes, but they also um, shut down the other function. Right. Right. They shut down our immune system, right? Making us more susceptible um, to any sort of diseases. Um, They make us um, less sexually aroused. Um, so we're less likely to connect just cause it's like, I don't have the space. I don't have the capacity to even be interested there. Um, it shuts down our digestive system. Um, that it, it kind of puts a hold on a lot of other parts of the body. And it also puts a lot of stress on the cardio or stress on the cardiovascular system because the heart is having to work so hard to pump out all these glucocorticoids that it is exhausting for the system to work so hard to mobilize so much energy for such a sustained period of time. And especially like we talked about when there's rigidity, when people remain stuck in these protective states, this has honestly a devastating impact on the body on the cardiovascular system, on the digestive system, all of these systems that are kind of halted um, to prioritize the stress response that we see all of these having really severe consequences if this stress is maintained over time. Well, of course, I mean, it makes me think of, you know, I've had coworkers in the past who are always stressed Mm -hmm. and then they're always sick, right? They always have a cold, they always have some sort of virus and it's like, Mm wonder if that's connected you know yeah i know for myself when i'm stressed the first thing that goes away is i don't get hungry yeah right right and it's like okay my nervous system has sent off these glucocorticoids to -hmm. shut down my digestive system so Mm -hmm. i'm not hungry Mm -hmm. so that i have more energy Mm -hmm. to do x y and z whatever the Mm -hmm. task is of the day yeah absolutely i think you totally see it that way Mm mm-hmm Definitely. Yeah. That's how the body mobilizes. And I think sometimes that response is like, oh no, when I'm stressed, I like to eat. (laughs) Like I like to feel good. And that's kind of acting on something else. That's usually not like a real imminent or pressing threat, but more like, I don't feel good. And I want something that's going to make me feel good. 
because when I'm stressed, I'm not like, Ooh, I had a broccoli. Sounds great right now. Like, let me get my steamer. <laughs> I'm like, okay, where's the chocolate? How much ice cream do we have in our freezer right now? It's all of these things are going to release positive chemicals and make me feel good in those moments, but rarely a response when there's this, this imminent pressing yeah. threat. Well, and that's also part of the glucose part, right? Like mm -hmm. no state your body is craving sugar because that's the thing it needs to mobilize. Like we're running out here. Yeah. <laughs> we need to make sure we can sustain this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's also sort of a, a big difference between the book and polyvagal theory, right? The book is looking at really the impact of glucocorticoids long-term on our different mm -hmm. bodily systems. Mm -hmm. Polyvagal theory is talking about the different branches mm -hmm. of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about this is like the highway and the cars, right? Like mm -hmm. the highway is the different branches of the nervous system and where mm -hmm. all the nerves go in your body. And then the glucocorticoids and adrenaline are the cars, right? There's the, they're the things that are traveling along this to get to different parts to get different things done. Yeah. I think that's the perfect metaphor, right? And what it does is it appreciates the function that each one has because we need it. We need it to survive. Um, so let's talk about the last part of this chapter. <laughs> I can see your face and you're like, I don't know. Because they sort of throw in uh, poor, uh, uh, sub Sapolsky throws in, I think the work of, um, what's the lady's name? I can't think of her name now. I actually reached out to her. I think she's passed away. I read one of her articles, Shelley Taylor. Taylor, yeah. Who says, actually, instead of just uh, fight or flight being our main mobilization response, um, we actually have another one. Mm -hmm. that is really prominent in women mm -hmm. so there's a gendered aspect here and she says that it's the it's the it's and the tend and befriend response that right. under stress there are some of us and it tends to be more women who want to tend to others mm -hmm. and especially like children mm -hmm. right and to befriend others right to, mm -hmm. to rely on their social supports mm -hmm. So you can see kind of early underpinnings of polyvagal that were being introduced at this time, but not really mm. consolidated yet. I mean, that's sort of my question, right? Mm -hmm. She's saying that this is another way to deal with um, stress. And my, my question is, is this like a protective version of the social engagement response? Is that kind of what that is? I, I don't know. I'm asking you. Yeah. No, How do I we think, understand this in the context of? Yeah. So basically Taylor's argument, which I, I do think was really important and really necessary at that time, was saying men have more of a tendency toward this limbic fight or flight response, that they're more likely to display that. Whereas women are more likely to utilize this other option of tend and befriend, which is basically to connect socially and tied it in with this release of oxytocin and how that regulates. Maybe that activates the parasympathetic system so that it can better counteract that women maybe are more predisposed to do so, which makes sense. Right. And I think it's an important observation. I think that this is, this is early kind of signs of 
maybe there is another way that our body can respond to stress, right? I, I do think that the gender difference that she noticed is because of the acculturation process, especially that we see here in the US where as a woman, um, at, even as a little girl, right? I was encouraged to talk about what was going on for me and I was encouraged to share and, and to socialize. And you know, that's what I did with my friends. We sat around and we talked, right? And, and that's how we bonded. Um, and that was seen as normal and that was encouraged that I could share parts of myself and, and express that verbally and ask for the comfort that I needed there. Um, whereas growing up with an older brother, you did sports with your friends. You didn't have to talk, like you just did stuff, right? And if you talked, it was like, that's weird that you're talking. Oh, how would you say that to me? Um, and, and so I do, I think that especially um, with those traditional gender roles that are so emphasized, I just think that women are often encouraged to take advantage more um, of that tend and befriend, maybe taught um, and encouraged to utilize that social engagement system. Whereas in traditionally in men that's been seen as weak or as something that real men don't need to do or you buff up and you deal with it, or you rub dirt in it, or by the bootstraps or whatever, saying, we've got a hundred of them, right? But the message is all the same. Don't talk about it because that's weakness, right? And so if I'm cut off from that social engagement system, if I'm cut off from that level of safety, what other option do I have when stress comes than to fight or flee? Hmm. So, I mean, you would see it as a part of the social engagement system. He's actually, this is, yeah. this is early, this is an early window into people realizing that we have a social engagement system. Yeah. I mean, there are thousands of people, you know, that have come out with different versions of this just because I think it's so core to who we are as people. So people will call it different things, tend and befriend, social engagement, attachment, whatever you want to call it, because ultimately we're all studying people, right? And, and we notice the same things about people. Um, so I do see those very much overlapping, that this is a way to deal with stress when stress comes, but it's safe enough for me to reach to the person next to me. That's this tendon befriend. My social engagement system can still be activated. This oxytocin can still be released in those moments. Yeah. What about the Gottman research that says that men tend to be flooded more easily? Right. Like if we're talking about arousal yeah. and how quickly arousal happens, mm -hmm. which is sort of like the, I think part of the big push behind mm -hmm. a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Like does, does that not play into that? Or is this, is, is that also largely due to how we're socialized? I think it is like, and again, this is me. A lot of it's me pulling from my personal experience and maybe what I've seen. Um, but I, I think that, especially when we talk about this idea of co-regulation, Right, that I was encouraged to co-regulate more with my female friends around me and to talk about what's going on for me more. And, and so what we know about co-regulation research is that if I'm able to co-regulate and experience the comfort of another in my distress, I then am more likely and capable of self-regulation, right? And I, I think even growing up with a brother, it was like, he wasn't as encouraged to co-regulate. I was like, you need to deal with this. You need to pull this together. And, and I saw that true in, 
and other families and people that we interacted with um, that you need to kind of be tough in these spots and you need to find like be a man and you need to find a way to deal with it. And therefore we don't offer them as many co-regulatory experiences where they can develop that regulatory capacity to be used on their own, um, which leads to more flooding. It's very interesting. I'm sort of taking it all in. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure as a dad with two boys. And, and so this is, again, I want to be clear, this is like my experience. This is kind of what I've seen. And I think how I've kind of made sense of those gender differences, because everything in our, in our research says people are a lot more similar than they are different. We love to draw distinctions. We love to, to you know, classify this is how this is, and this is different, and this is the distinction between them. But in reality, it's a lot more similar, that there's a lot less biological difference, which means we look to the ways that we're socialized. What are we taught to do? What opportunities are we given um, to co-regulate around these places? And how does that set us up differently? And so these are my opinions, and I want to clarify that. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's different parts to this, right? Because he talks about this in the book a little bit, um, especially when supposedly talks about, like, how you can think of, uh, like, groups of men going out to fight a battle. And, like, that's a version of the tendon befriend sort of response. Mm-hmm. So, he, I mean, he even says, you know, there's some amb- ambiguity here. We're not really clear on this. Mm-hmm. We do see some of the same things in men. And then he also mm-hmm. says, you know, on the flip side with women, you know, you have the motif of the mama bear, right? Who just like, you know, goes out and is total fight. And I've, I've heard stories of people who have run into mother bears when they're out hiking. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like that is all terrifying. People talk about yeah. just like the sheer terror that, that they felt. Yeah. You know, from this other mammal who's like, I'm going to rip your face off. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely, um, uh, not set in stone in the book. Mm-hmm. And then also, and I have no idea, right? But I, I also know that the one thing that we have that is probably our superpower as a species is our ability to learn. Mm-hmm. you know and whatever biological predispositions we may or may not have I think that for most of us most of the time if you look at a lot of the research we are learning machines and we can learn different things yeah. so I wouldn't be surprised if you know in 20 years they came out with a study and said yeah but it's all social socialization and how would you know now? Because everyone you're testing on has been socialized this this way. I was going right? to say, it can be really hard to parse out, right? Because there are just so many things influencing. And yeah. Every parent's going to do that different. And, right. Um, so I, I just think it's important to, to get curious around, does every child have opportunity to co-regulate? Yeah. To be instilled with that capacity for self-regulation? Because research says that's gonna how we protect them from being flooded and overly activated in the future. It's, it's also interesting, I think he talks about this in this chapter because 
he also uses a lot of animal models throughout this, this mm -hmm. whole book, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we get to the section on hyenas, like that's, oh <laughs> I don't know if you know about hyenas. Um, but like lions, right? Like in, um, I think he talks about this too with, with lions. Is that in this section? Is that, is that later on? I think it might be later on. This later one on. was um, the slaughterhouses and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those. Um, but with like lions, like, you do see both the males and the females being very aggressive, mm -hmm. right? They both are really good at using that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. You know, like the females are the main hunters of the pack. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't, you don't get that way unless you're able to be absolutely ferocious. Yeah, you know, a hundred percent. So, mm. yeah, and so. Jordan was laughing at me initially because this is really my soapbox, but it, it does, <laughs> it like bothers me that we want to like restrict of like, okay, well, women just aren't as prone to this. They just like want to talk about it. And that, what it really does is it, it kind of creates this hierarchy, you know, or again, pits them against one another. Um, when in reality, social engagements, um, when it's activated, when we're able to tend and be friends, that is a good thing. That is a good stress response that leads to higher co-regulatory behaviors. It's not always an option. And gender, regardless of gender, we are able to activate to get where we need to, dependent on the threat. Yeah, I mean, it kind of um, goes back to yeah. your thoughts last week on like um, framing, right? Mm -hmm. Like we do not want to frame things so that it is less accessible for boys to co-regulate yes we yeah. want men and boys to be able to say hey this was this is what is going on for me mm -hmm. and to feel better after they, they talk about it mm -hmm. yeah because all people do yeah <laughs> it's just written on us like we can't choose um it's not dictated by gender our um, physiology needs it right Absolutely. That's when we're seeing, that's when we're at our best. Um, well, thank you very much. So what was your big takeaway from this chapter of the book? I honestly really um, just appreciated the distinction between that short-term response and the long-term response of stress, because I think what it does is clarifies for me, and especially the first time I read it, but still now, right? Is it clarifies, the issue is when I get stuck in this state. That's when it becomes devastating to my system is when I get stuck in this long-term glucocorticoids are being released nonstop that's when stress gets dangerous, right? And, and so how do I have more fluidity between my state, between the branches um, so that I'm still able to access my stress response when I need it, but I'm not stuck there with this rigidity um, that keeps me from functioning the ways that I want to. And so I really appreciated that distinction. Yeah, that's really cool. Flexibility is the key. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think for me, the 
big takeaway was how these different systems impact the body. Mm-hmm. You just made it much more concrete, right? Yeah. Like when I'm and and it helped me to make more sense of myself. When mm-hmm. I'm anxious, I'm not hungry. You know, mm-hmm. my digestion has shut down. Mm-hmm. That's what happens because my body is trying to be mobilized. You know, um, or I don't know. I remember, I remember a long time ago, I was really, really stressed. And after I got really, really stressed, I have this big thing to do. Then it got really, really sleepy. Mm-hmm. And I was, and looking back, I'm like, that was my freeze response probably coming online. Mm-hmm. I was that stressed. Yeah. Yeah. And my body was real, like had, had almost flipped. I was using that parasympathetic uh, energy, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the nervous system, no mm-hmm. longer for connection, but to slow me down and mm-hmm. sort of put me at the bottom level of that ladder. Mm-hmm. I was like, man. So for me, just seeing how these things impact my physical body has made a mm-hmm. lot of sense mm-hmm. for me and it's helped me to have a deeper understanding of my own responses mm-hmm. to things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it clarifies to what our goal is in this is to have the fluidity that we need between the states, right? And I understand them not to fight one against the other and make sure my parasympathetic is so dominant <laughs> in these ways, but how can I have the fluidity that my body needs to, to function in the way that it should? Yeah, I think that's so important. I have so many clients who come in and they say, I feel really anxious. Tell me to stop it. And then you tell me this horror story. <laughs> it's like, yeah. actually, you feel anxious because you're alive and your body's working well. <laughs> like, you yeah. feel anxious because... You're asking me to help you not be human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Dr. Conroy, it's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, Jordan.